G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. An unusual lady came at an unusual time, encountered an unusual man who gave her an unusual answer to what to our ears at least was a highly unusual question indeed. Uh, The lady was a Samaritan woman and the story is from John 4. The lady was unusual in the sense that she was a total loner um, among her peers. Why was that? Well, because her reputation... Um, it seems, either made her unwelcome among them, she no longer had a place with them, or she had kind of opted, kind of opted out of their company because it had got a little bit hard and she'd become sick of the judgment, the condescension, the spite, perhaps. Hence the unusual time, uh, the unusual time, she came to a well to draw water in the scorching heat of the day rather than earlier on when everyone else would have been there, she came at an unusual time when she had every reason to expect some peace and some solitude. She'd be alone. Jesus was the unusual man uh, and he basically told her her fortune, if I can co-opt that phrase for this purpose, Uh, and so she did the math and figured out that he must be a prophet of God, some kind of messenger uh, from God, this unusual man in her midst, and that leaves just her unusual question and his unusual answer. John chapter 4 and verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers, that is the Samaritan fathers, um, so the fathers of her people, Um, who had roots amongst the people of God back in the Old Testament. Uh, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews uh, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, that's very unusual to our ears, isn't it? But the implied question, the implied unusual question is the question that a God-honouring Samaritan would have burning on their very consciences. Uh, Okay, Jesus, you're a prophet from God, then answer the religious question burning on the conscience of every living Samaritan, how do we worship God? How are we supposed to do it? Tell me, O prophet of the Lord, the God-sanctioned way to worship. O Jesus, is it here or is it there? Is it um, the Samaritan rules and place and altars or is it the Jewish laws and temple and Bible? What is the proper way, O prophet of the Lord? to worship the Lord God. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning, from all of that unusual lady and time and man and answer and question and everything, for any of us who has ever wondered how little me can or should or may worship the Lord God of heaven, you know, what would that even look like? In the modern world, how is that supposed to look? I look at my Bible, I look at all that Old Testament get up and it sounds so dated, it sounds so foreign and frankly it just sounds so out of touch and weird. For those of us 
who, on the other hand, maybe have read our Old Testament, those very same passages, and wondered why we aren't a little bit more bold in taking some of our cues for how we do church here and how we do worship and all the rest, a few more of our cues from there, the altars and the feasts and the fasts. After all, if God commanded it, who am I to call it weird or odd or quaint or whatever? Shouldn't we just get on with it and hang the consequences of people thinking that we're a little bit odd? For perhaps some others of us, we're a little bit more straightforward. Um, we might be thinking, fair cop, in my own way, I, or, I do, I think I am doing enough for God to keep God happy, aren't I? Call it worship if you like. I, I do a, my bit around here at church. I show up, I chip in, um, I, maybe not as rigorously and thoroughly as I would at work, but I'm, I give it a go. I mean, I get paid at work, so that sort of, you know, of course I'm going to try harder at Anyway, anyway, but I give, I give to God, don't I? Enough. For any of us here today who are perhaps simply confused about how we're supposed to worship God in the modern life, our starting point today is the Lord Jesus Christ's unusual answer to this lady in John chapter 4. Because suffice to say, he proposed massive and dramatic change for worship in his day. This lady, she she hoped that this prophet would adjudicate, didn't she, between two rival um, ways to worship God that had pedigree in the Old Testament. She hoped that Jesus would adjudicate between these two branches, as it were, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm snapping those two branches off and I'm going to plant a whole new tree. Um, Take a look now, from now on, from me onward, your worship will change forever, Jesus is basically saying. Are you listening here? John chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, and down at verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Today we're wrapping up our series, our three weeks on worship. Uh, Christ is the true worshipper, that was week number one, do you remember that? Christ is the worship leader, leads us in worship of God. Uh, Christ alone embodies God's presence among us, that was week number two, wasn't it? And by the Spirit, um, He now sweeps us into the very throne room of heaven. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is where we need, that is the place where we draw near to God, Christian, in Jesus. And this week, yes, but how? How on earth am I supposed to worship God? What does this spirit and truth worship of God even mean that Jesus is holding out for us in the modern world? What does it look like in my life, in modern existence? So my big hope is that we get, I guess it's in two parts, it's that we get what remains and consistently right through the Bible, what sticks, what stays the same, uh, and secondly, that we, that we get what is genuinely new, how Jesus has really changed the game, planted a new tree, however you want to put it. Um, and I'll close with, close with some practicalities. Uh, shall we pray together as we come to God's Word on this um, crucial topic of worship? Let's pray. Great Lord God in heaven, each of us this morning comes from a background. We come from a history, we come from some kind of tradition, whether a church tradition whether our family roots, we've each got a certain preconceived idea of what a good life under God looks like. 
what God-honouring behaviour means and we've got some kind of measure on how we are going with that. Father, would you please enable us this morning to grasp the heart of the matter from your word, from your instruction to us. May we see your character and your purpose more fully. And so may we learn to respond more fittingly, more appropriately to the God who is there, to the God who deserves our adoration, our dedication, our service. That is to say, deserves our worship and we ask it for the sake of Christ. Amen. Uh, You might remember me a little while ago, I told the story of one of John Dixon's mates. Uh, Do you remember the story there? Uh, And uh, it was one of his mates, what I would call a creative solution to the problem of figuring out how to worship God or the gods or, you know, whatever it is that's up there. Um, And he tells the story here. He says, I know of a teacher in an Australian private school who begins most mornings with 10 minutes of transcendental meditation, a few lines from the Quran and a rendition of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in Heaven. I suspect his motivation goes beyond that of religious insurance, just covering all of his bets, so to speak, but it is certainly an interesting approach to the variety of religions on offer. By contrast, I've got a number of mates who do virtually nothing of a spiritual nature, no church, no prayers, and except for a few rugby matches back in 2001, no experiences of an ecstatic nature. Now, Dixon reflects, as strange as it sounds, both approaches are often just different responses to the one spiritual dilemma. When it comes to faith, and I'd want to say this morning, when it comes to worship, there appears to be no clarity, just a cacophony of competing claims. Folks, today I want us to get some clarity on how biblical worship hangs together. I want us to understand how it all holds together and some clarity on how to put it into effect in our lives. So to begin with, I'd like us to wind back the clock, back before us, back before Jesus, uh, back into the time when God gave His law um, to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, most of which was about how you guys are supposed to worship me. So let's wind back the clock, right back to uh, the people of Israel before they enter the Promised Land. How are the people of God supposed to worship the Lord? Uh, Would you come back with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 12? Deuteronomy 12. And please notice this one thing um, initially, perhaps it's an obvious thing to say, Um, as we come to Deuteronomy 12, give you a chance to find that for those of you flicking along there, I can see that. Um, Just a a thing to notice right up front, uh, Deuteronomy is saying you mustn't cook up worship ideas for yourself, all right? God is telling them how it's supposed to be. Um, Don't cook it up for yourself, don't look over the fence and see some cool ideas about how other people are worshipping their gods and just copy them. No, no, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it, I reckon. Um, God decides what pleases God, you see? You want to know how to worship the Lord God of heaven and earth? Then listen to God's Word. Here we go, Deuteronomy 12. These are the decrees and the laws that you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. 
break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. That's anticipating the temple, isn't it? To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Let's keep going, just one more paragraph. There's a bit of repetition, but there's some new stuff. I just do want us to see this. Verse 8, you are not to do as we do here today. Everyone as he sees fit. Since you haven't yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and your daughters, your men servants and maidservants and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Here we go. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. Okay, passing question, would John Dixon's mate, all right, uh, back there, the high school, the private school teacher, would John Dixon's mate with his prayers and recitations and meditations, would that cobbled together approach wash with the God of Deuteronomy, do you reckon? Would the, uh, would God be happy if he got his bit his 10 minutes, uh, 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 his favourite prayer offered up amongst a bit of meditation this and a bit of uh, reading of uh, uh, some rival scriptures that. Here's the impression I get from Deuteronomy 12. No way. (laughs) Is that fair to say from Deuteronomy? God doesn't want his bit. He doesn't want his few minutes. He's saying, you're going to do it my way. I'm not your client. I'm your God. I'm God, like the real God, the actual God who's actually rescued you, the one who exists, the one who is talking, the one who is telling you, hello, I get a monopoly on your worship. Um, Don't worship their way, don't do it your way, don't do what pleases you, don't do what's easy for you, do it my way, I'm your God and uh, not your client. Now, I'm a little loath to read it, in a way, um, but that has a hard edge to it, doesn't it? If you just, uh, I'm not, it may be on the same page, but I'm, it's uh, just over the page for me, still in Deuteronomy 12. Um, th- th- that has a very hard edge to it, this, you will worship God my way and not some other way. Now, please don't think that I'm advocating this approach today, um, in our setting, but in ancient Israel, under their law, with their worship, in their context... False worship was brutally condemned. So, Deuteronomy 12, 29, the Lord your God will cut off before you the nations that you're about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. 
you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Don't add to it or take away from it. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder which he has spoken takes place and he says, let's follow other gods, gods you haven't known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of, the, out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow you must purge the evil from among you. It's the hard edge, isn't it, of exclusive worship, the severity. Worshipping God was literally a matter of life and death. At the personal level, it was a matter of life and death. Um, It meant death for the sake of false worship leaders. At the national level, it spelled death for the entire nation. Um, I wonder if you remember, remember but that's the, the kind of language that was used. See, why did God smash his people? Say in 2 Kings 17, um, I made Assyria come down and crush you, Israel, in 722 BC. We're talking about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel after they divided into two. So why did God have Assyria come and crush the people of Israel in 722 BC? Because of worship. So in 2 Kings 17, all this, that crushing, took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Sinned in what way? They worshipped, it says, other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord God had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. And it goes on and on. You can read that for yourself later, 2 Kings 17. Oh, modern listener today, please do not reduce worship to giving God his bit. In the Bible's picture of it, it is a life and death thing. He either has your very life or you forfeit that life. You either give him your entire life, or he might just take it back and relieve you of it. Is there severity here? Uh, You bet. But I wonder, even within Deuteronomy, did you notice that other thing that's there? The severity, oh, it's a whole life thing. It requires your life thing, but there's a flip side to that. Take another look at verse 3 with me, Deuteronomy 13, verse 3. We've already read it. Because I wonder if you, like me, I must admit, I kind of think of worship in the Old Testament kind of being a whole lot simpler back then, in a sense. Do you see? Because yes, I mean, they had to follow all the rules. If I went back there, I'd have to follow all of these rules. But they seem pretty contained, aren't they? There's a temple, I'd have to go to the temple sometimes. There are sacrifices I'd have to 
make sacrifices sometimes. This Saturday, okay, I'd have to be a bit more strict about how I spend my Saturday and how I don't. Um, Like, yes, I'd have to obey all that stuff. Yes, meticulously, particularly, emphatically, absolutely. But once I've got that out of the way, well, then my life's mine. I can do whatever I want. I can spend it however I like. Do you see? Old Testament religion and worship, yeah, maybe it'd be a drag and an inconvenience. But then you know, killing your very best lamb, wasting it at at, at a temple sacrifice. But once I'm done, great, I can do whatever I want. I can farm, I can build, I can herd, I can eat, sleep, drink, whatever. No, no, says Deuteronomy verse 3. Don't conceive of it like that. Deuteronomy 13 verse 3. You mustn't listen to the words of that, you know, dodgy prophet with their wonky ideas about worship. No, the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, do you see? Even in the Old Testament, Christian, um, uh, I mean, let me put it in today's terms. I truly hope that Jesus has your heart today um, and your soul and your mind and your strength, not least because he loves us. I hope that Jesus has your heart and soul and mind and strength, not least because he died for us because he is our saviour, because he is so real to us and so familiar. But let's not mistake Old Testament worshippers as somehow less enlightened or less dedicated to the Lord or less real. Let's not imagine that they lacked a heart and soul dimension. No, that is what God was searching for, looking for. I want to know, do you love me, Old Testament worshippers of the Lord? No, no, it would be wrong, says David Peterson, It would be wrong to think the people in Old Testament times were wholly occupied with the business of atonement for sins and to regard their worship as a sombre and dreary necessity. No, the Psalms, he says, you know, think about Psalm 99 from before, the Lord reigns, all that sort of stuff. The Psalms testify to the joy of the pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem and the longing of the godly to meet with God and his people in the courts of his temple. Indeed, praise and thanksgiving belonged to the whole life of God's people. I think it's got to make us wonder, has the heart of worship really changed from right back then? Is Old Testament worship, as I read about it through the pages of of the Old Testament, is it ultimately this profoundly foreign thing that I cannot even wrap my head around? No, I don't think the heart of worship has changed. The terms have. Oh, the terms have. The law has. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. The covenant has. We don't relate to God in the same way, with the same particulars, through the covenant of Sinai anymore, or its temple, or its sacrifices. Christ put an end to that. Why am I labouring this so much? Because on the one hand, please don't look for guidance on how to do worship from the Old Testament in terms of the practicalities, the way of it. But on the other, I want to say, hang on, let's not so put ourselves in this uh, superior pedestal that it's as if I've got nothing to learn from that Old Testament, uh, those Old Testament believers, as if we have nothing to learn from them, admire in them, even emulate of them in terms of their heart and soul dedication to the Lord. Uh, Don Carson draws, I think, a a very helpful um, parallel and yet divide where he says, the way that holy, loving God works out under the Old Covenant is in heartfelt obedience 
to the terms of that covenant. And that includes distinctions between the holy and the common, between holy space and common space, you know, the temple and everywhere else, between holy time and common time, the the feasts and the festivals, between holy food and common food. And then he says, the way that holy, loving God works out under the new covenant is in heartfelt obedience to the terms of that covenant. In other words, it's the same, it's just that the, the terms have changed. And he says, and here the language has been, silly word, has been transmuted to all of life with the implication not so much of a desacralization of space and time, oh, there's nowhere holy anymore, there's nothing holy, a desacralization of space and time and food, as with a sacralization, a making holy of all of space and all of time and all food. What God has declared holy, let no one declare unholy. Okay, brothers and sisters, come back with me to John chapter 4, come back with me to the unusual lady, to her unusual question, to Christ's unusual answer in John chapter 4, his radical promise that the terms have changed and it's time for heartfelt obedience to look radically different. Come back with me to a new way to worship, John 4 verse 21, believe me woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Further down, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Just appreciate for a moment who he's talking to. You, who has made a mess of your life. You, who can't even hang out with your peers, let alone serve God. You, who has obviously made a hash of even the old covenant worship, what hope do you have of worshipping God? Well, it's a new time when even you can worship. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father. And perhaps it's a a strange way to tease it out from from now to the end, uh, folks, but I want to give you five practical steps for new covenant worship, for uh, New Testament worship of how to really worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, They're going to be fast and brief as we head towards a conclusion. I'm going to give you a verse for each one that you can chase up afterwards, but I hope there's food for thought in at least one of these um, for each of us. So, I've got five ways. The first one, the obvious one, step one, believe in Jesus. (laughs) That's where she started, isn't it? You've got to believe in Jesus. You can never worship God in this new way unless you begin here. And if you're new to us, you've come in amongst us, this is what you've got to hear right from the start. You can never worship God unless you begin here. So, a couple of chapters later, right, from where we were um, in John 4, in John 6 we read, then the crowd asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? It's a pretty good question. How can I please God? What does God want from me? And Jesus fires back with the heart of New Testament worship. He says, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus isn't proposing that you superglue a little bit of transcendental this to a little bit of meditative that. No, no, heart and soul You can worship God one way and it is by believing in Jesus. That is step one. You must start there. 
If your friends are confused about how to worship God, how to connect with God in their life, that is where they must start to do the work of God, is to believe in the one he has sent, John chapter 6. Secondly, step number two, give him everything. By which I don't mean your stuff, actually. Not your stuff, I mean your life, I mean your all. Let's have a look now at the key verse in the New Testament um, on worship. Would you come with me, please, to Romans 12? I said we'd just pick out a a few verses... Um, And here is, I reckon, the memory verse from the whole series, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where the language of, yes, sacrifice, of offering, of temple, of worship, are now taken up and put into our lives, Christians. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that is to say, in view of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that I've been now pounding out for 11 chapters up until this point, uh, Paul is saying in Romans, in view of God saving us through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in view of all of that, have you got that clear? Because you need to have it clear before you understand what I'm about to tell you to do. Have you got it? Jesus died for you to give you life, to give you, to bring you to God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The image to have in mind, and I wonder if we kind of appreciate this fully, is not just that I am an Old Testament worshipper bringing a sacrifice to the temple and then the priest sacrifices the lamb and that's done and now I can worship God. No, the image is I am the lamb being brought to the temple, up to the altar, do you see what I mean? To offer your bodies as living, I think it means your very selves, to offer your very selves, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But hang on a sec. What about church then? Because ordinarily, when we talk about worship, we're thinking about this, aren't we? We're thinking about what we do here. Hang on, we call this, we call church worship. I thought this was worship. Well, respectfully, Christian, perhaps we've been using the word wrongly or at least unhelpfully and a little confusingly. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, says Don Carson, I think he's right. In the New Testament, worship language moves the locus away from a place or a time to all of life. One of the entailments is that we cannot imagine that the church gathers for worship on Sunday morning, if by this we mean that we then engage in something at church that we haven't been engaging in the rest of the week. New covenant worship terminology prescribes constant worship. See what this means? So, is church worship... Well, yeah, of course it is, because all of your life is worship. All it's supposed to be, uh, but it's, it's only worship because it's part of the Christian life and all of your life is worship. We do it together and so we can call it corporate worship. I think that's a helpful way to describe it. But here's the thing, we must stop calling this worship if or insofar as it leads you or me to believe that the rest of my week, it belongs to me, not to God. Do you see where the confusion creeps in? Got to be careful with the way that we use it. Is this worship? Of course it is, because it's part of the Christian life. 
Is this the only place where worship happens in my week? No way. And if, that, if we're feeding that problem in your mind, then at least for yourself, um, stop calling it worship for a while. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Step four, but how? <laughs> okay, so if it's not just Sunday morning, um, what if I don't know how to be a builder to the glory of God or spend my retirement in worship of God or be a teacher to the glory of God or what, be a mother to, in worship to God or a student or in the service industry or um, a plumber or run a business? Not just with work, but how do I worship God outside my work? How do I worship God in my play, in my recreation, in my family life, with regard to my parents and how I treat them in uh, my home? Well, that's where verse 2 helps. So read straight on with me, Romans 12, uh, verse 1 now into 2. So offer your bodies, that's your worship now. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what, what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. What I love about that verse is it's realistic because in the first half there, can you see it? It's realistic, because sinful man that I am, I have to unlearn the patterns, how does it describe it? The patterns of this world that I've conformed to, that aren't worshipful to God at all. They are not spiritual worship, they're selfish and evil and mean. No, no, don't conform to that any longer. But what is, what's the second half practically saying there? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. I think it simply means this, doesn't it? That we have to learn to worship the Lord in all of life. Learn from the Word of God in your work, in your play, in your rest, in your family, in your everything. Listen to God's Word and the transformation to a life of worship will emerge. If you don't know how to worship God as a plumber, as a business owner, then you've got to come back to the Word for the renewing of your mind. Don't cook it up for yourself. We worship according to the Word. But that will take mind work, Bible work, to figure out what that looks like. Now, finally, and I'll conclude with this one, step number five, how can I help others? I'm very conscious that um, in these three weeks we haven't said everything that there is to say about worship in the New Testament or across the whole Bible. You might feel that we've said an awful lot. How can there possibly be more? But there you go, here we are. I'm saying that there's more. Uh, One strain that I have skipped over is the sense in which we are very much together and invested in one another's lives um, in worship. We help one another and indeed we worship together and I don't just mean on a Sunday morning either. Uh, but I would like to leave you with a reflection from another pastor on how we can help one another and especially children to learn how to worship the Lord in all of their lives. Here we go, from another pastor. He writes, Not long ago... After I had spoken on the subject of biblical worship at a large metropolitan church, one of the elders wrote to me to ask how I would try to get across my main point to children, approximately ages 10 to 12. He was referring in particular to things that I'd said about Romans 12, 1 to 2. I responded by saying that kids of that age, they don't absorb abstract ideas very easily unless they're lived out and identified. The Christian home or the Christian parent who obviously delights in corporate worship 
in thoughtful evangelism, in self-effacing and self-sacrificing decisions within the home, in sacrificial giving for the poor and the needy and the lost, and who then explains to the child that those decisions and actions are part of gratitude and worship to the sovereign God who's loved us so much that he gave his own son to pay the price for our sins. That approach will have far more impact on the child's notion of genuine worship than all of the lecturing and classroom instruction in the world. Somewhere along the line, it's important not only to explain that genuine worship is nothing more than loving God with heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbour as ourselves, but also to show what a statement like that means in the concrete decisions of life. He concludes with this question, how utterly different will that child's thinking be than that of the child who is born reared in a home where secularism rules all week, but where people go to church on Sunday to worship for half an hour before the sermon? Can we pray together? Oh Lord God in heaven, it is not because of anything that we've done that you've opened the way for us to come and worship you. It is certainly not because of our track record or, or our impressiveness that you've taken hold of our lives and made us in the Lord Jesus fitting worshippers of you, swept us into the very throne room of God by the Spirit. Uh, it's not because of what we've done that you've granted us a sure and a clear promise of an eternity spent in the new creation, in lives that worship you fully in all that we do. Father, it's because of the Lord Jesus. He has shown us how to worship you perfectly. He embodied it and, and he came to us. Father, we ask, would you please help us in our community life? Well, firstly, thank you that we have, that we share a community life, that we help one another to worship you, that we point one another daily to our God and the salvation that we enjoy. Um, Father, thank you that we have one another to lean on and to learn from. And we pray, Father, would you please teach us not to conform to the old ways, not to be content with the old ways, but give us a godly discontent that strives after a whole life that is worshipful to you, the God who is there, the God who has rescued us, the God who demands, but the God who deserves our entire lives. Help us in this, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen.